Welcome to the Beer Makes History podcast presented by Yield Tavern Tours. This 10-episode series explores Boston during the American Revolution and beer's role in all of it. I'm Brooke, one of your hosts. I have a PhD in American history, I founded Yield Tavern Tours, and I'm an author and beer lover. In each episode, we pair a beer with our history, and that's where my co-host comes in. I'm Kristen. I'm a PhD student in history, a tour guide for Yield Tavern Tours, and I'll be talking about the beer pairings in each episode, which means I'll be drinking a lot for research. So join us as beer makes history. Hey, history and beer lovers, it's episode three. Today, we're going to be covering the years between 1765 and 1766 in Boston and picking up with the passage of the Sugar Act. As always, though, beer first. Today, we're drinking Mean Old Tom from Maine Beer Company in Freeport, Maine. Now, I know it's a little crazy that we've had three episodes and three beers from Maine. I promise we're going to get you some more diversity. But, you know, Maine is making a lot of really good beer right now. So we also want to highlight that. Mean Old Tom comes in a single bottle, not a six pack. And it's just a little bit over a pint. Um, We want to thank Craft Beer Cellar for providing this beer today. And we picked this to pair with episode three in honor of our key player, Tom Thomas Hutchinson. Kristen! Tom is not mean. I know you love him. (laughs) Some people might have used a similar epithet, but more on that later in the episode. In our beer intro, I want to highlight that this is a stout. Mean Old Tom comes in at 6.5%. Most of you should know that stout beers are dark beers. I know a lot of people that are anti-dark beer drinkers, but I think there's a lot of misconceptions about Mm. dark beers out there. People think that they're heavy and strong and super alcoholic. And this may be true with a lot of porters or even certain types of stouts like imperial stouts that came out of Russia. But actually, a lot of stouts aren't terribly strong and aren't terribly heavy, particularly in the Irish style. They are famous for this dry style stout. Most of you would have known about what Irish beer? Guinness? Guinness, yes. Yes. Prime example of a dry stout. So these are actually very low in alcohol content, even lower than a lot of American lagers. I like to think this is so you can drink it all day. Mean old Tom, though, is 6.5% alcohol. Yes. So um, Maine is not in Ireland. (laughs) Geography quiz. So this is an American-style stout. I see. Let's get opening. Okay, go ahead. While you're opening, I will explain what American-style stouts tend to taste like. Yeah. So they are a little bit silkier and a little sweeter, more robust. Can you hear that pouring? (laughs) Glug, glug, glug. So it smells awesome. You're going to tell me what I'm smelling in a minute here. Yes. So a lot of typical American style stouts um, will come with coffee, dark chocolate flavors. A lot of brewers will even add real coffee and dark chocolate. They're not sort of phantom flavors. Perfect right, pour. That's the last of it. Okay. And then this stout in particular was aged on vanilla beans. So you should really be able to get an aroma of vanilla. Okay. Huzzah! Mmm. I can smell the vanilla For and the sure. coffee. I taste the coffee. Mm-hmm. I can smell the vanilla. This is a really yummy beer. I just had some chocolate, so I'm getting a lot of chocolate <laughs> too. You I cheated. <laughs> well, I thought it would be a good pairing. You're smart like that. Oh, see, I really like this. I don't consider myself a dark beer drinker, but this is delicious. Yeah, it's easy. And we got a nice head on it, too. And that's just, I could spoon that. 
It's so yummy. The head is so good. Yeah, I think I have a stout mustache at the moment, but that's okay. <laughs> Luckily, this is a podcast medium. <laughs> so one thing I want to talk about today is that flavors like these chocolate vanilla aromas, they really come out as we let the beer warm up. Mm. So most beer out of your fridge or um, out of the draft line are going to come out at about 38 degrees. And the happy window for beer drinking is between 40 and 55 degrees. So it's At the very least, you should let it sit for a few minutes. The general rule is that the more alcohol content and the darker the beer, the warmer it can be drunk to really get out those aromas on the nose and a lot of flavors on your palate. Wait, that makes sense because when I was a server way back when, the bartender went out to smoke and he told me to mind the bar and I was nervous. And of course, someone came up and ordered something and they ordered a Guinness. Mm -hmm. And I pulled out the cold glass from the ice chest and started to pour the Guinness. And Stevie, the bartender, ran in and was like, no, you never serve a Guinness in a cold glass. That lesson stuck because I obviously my, (laughs) it was my one failed attempt at a bartender. (laughs) But I'm remembering this. So that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. So a lot of beers, they're drank cold because they don't have a lot of flavors. But with better beers or micro beers in particular that you really want to to taste those flavors and smell those flavors, warmer beers better. You can cut the cold glass. How colonial too. Yes. No no Xboxes or refrigerators. So I'm actually going to try today to revisit this beer Mm, as we go through the podcast every five or ten minutes if you want to play along and revisit your own beers I recommend trying it again like it's your first sip I actually took this one out 30 minutes or so before we started recording good okay we got a head start on that 40 to 55 degree window so I'm excited to try that today Brooke what are you excited about for this episode (laughs) oh my goodness you guys this is a really fun episode Um, we're going to start to see a shift in the way Boston's rebels protest it had mostly been with words alone leading up to this and so we really get some violence going. We'll also see the rebels of Boston and their influence on other North American colonies, which is really interesting. So I also happen to like our key player today, Thomas Hutchinson, but let's get to it. The Sugar Act alone wouldn't solve the problem of paying down the French and Indian War debt. As we mentioned last episode, another tax was Parliament's solution, and it was the Stamp Act. Now, this act required that any printed documents needed a stamp. Newspapers, deeds, diplomas, marriage licenses, playing cards, almanacs, and liquor licenses all needed these new stamps. Bostonians heard about this Stamp Act in May 1765, and it was going to take effect on November 1st, 1765. This tax was unpopular because nearly everyone was going to be affected. And also, frankly, it's a tax. (laughs) They didn't like the Sugar Act. They're not going to like the Stamp Act. But it disproportionately affected the most vocal people in society, including lawyers, merchants, and newspaper owners who heavily criticized it. I'm not sure that this is a great idea because those are all people (laughs) that know how to argue and do so for a living. Yes, and so publicly, exactly. The responses in Boston against the Stamp Act were so intense, and this includes in the pulpits, but especially in the newspapers, that the lieutenant governor of Massachusetts, Thomas Hutchinson, feared the Stamp Act might lead to violence. Hutchinson wrote in August 1765, Quote, I hope we shall be able to keep peace in the execution of the Stamp Act, notwithstanding all the newspaper threats. Hutchinson had reason to be concerned because he'd known how vindictive Bostonians could be. 
He is our key player today. We're featuring a loyalist, Kristen. Mean old Tom. Here we go. Oh, God. <laughs> You're calling him mean because you remember from our last episode that this is the man that the Otis family had targeted. That's James Otis Sr., James Otis Jr., and Mercy Otis Warren. But even as a staunch loyalist, Hutchinson is as much of an American as James Otis Jr. It's worth noting that most loyalists at this time, including Thomas Hutchinson, were natives to the colonies. They were not born in England, and it's sometimes hard to picture this, loyalists as natives to the colonies because of their later allegiance, but they were. Hutchinson was born in the colonies with deep roots in Massachusetts. His great, great grandmother was Anne Hutchinson. Wait, the Anne Hutchinson most of us have heard of? Yes, the woman who was banished from Massachusetts by Governor John Winthrop in the 1630s for her radical religious ideas. They were radical because she didn't agree with everything the Puritans <laughs> said. Um, who Hut- did? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Hutchinson was fascinated by his heritage, so much so that he began writing a two-volume history of the colony of Massachusetts. He's a historian like us. Does that turn you a little bit? Um, well, well, <laughs> What I find fascinating about this is this is our second episode in a row with a amateur historian because Mercy Otis Warren last episode was also our amateur historian. But I have to say, Brooke, I'm not sure she would like being paired in the same profession with uh, Mr. (laughs) Mean old Tom here. Undoubtedly not. And you know why she would think he's mean. One reason to resent the heck out of him is because his family was rich. They had achieved great success in America. Now, I'm going to start to turn the tables here a little bit. Hutchinson is a family man. He was a devoted husband who didn't marry again after his first love and wife, Peggy, died during childbirth in 1754. Her death devastated him. He did remain close to his five children throughout their lives and especially doted, this is so sad, on his youngest daughter, Peggy, who was named for his wife who died giving birth to her. That is sweet and sad. And sad. And then Hutchinson, it gets actually worse. Mm -hmm. Hutchinson was inconsolable when Peggy became sick in her early 20s. Her illness and care became Hutchinson's purpose. Peggy died at just 23 years old and Hutchinson's grief was (sighs) all-consuming. Now, Bernard Balin, grandfather of revolutionary American history, a personal hero of mine, he wrote a biography about Hutchinson. And if you don't start crying when you read about Hutchinson's state after the death of his daughter, I'd be shocked. I mean, it's it's really so sad. Okay, I get he's a family man, he loves his wife and kids, but most people probably agree with me at this point, right? I mean, there's a reason he had a reputation in Boston. True, but he's not bad to all Bostonians. Benjamin Franklin's sister, Jane Franklin Meekomb, actually appreciated Hutchinson's position at the top of the Supreme Court. The the very position, by the way, that James Otis Jr. hated him for. Well, because he wasn't qualified. (laughs) Well, listen, (laughs) Benjamin and his sister had been born in Boston, and Benjamin moves to Philadelphia, but Jane stayed in Boston the rest of her life. When Jane had to go to court after her loser husband died in debt, (laughs) Hutchinson helped her out by not sending her to the poorhouse, which was a very viable option for women without a husband at this time. Jane was so grateful and wrote to her big brother that Hutchinson, quote, has shown me the greatest clemency. Probably because he didn't know the actual law for the poor. Oh my God, you're terrible. <laughs> no, in, in fairness, her biographer does think that he helped her in credit to her older brother, well, Benjamin. All right, anyway, all right, anyway, that's sweet. all right. Okay. <laughs> so if that doesn't turn you, here's something else. 
the hatred that Hutchinson inspires and is currently inspiring in you, Kristen, (laughs) seems disproportionate to his actual political beliefs. But Hutchinson lacks the charisma and goodwill to repair these relationships. Hutchinson actually opposes the Stamp Act. He doesn't think it's a good idea, but he's a man in service of Great Britain and acknowledged Parliament's right to tax the colonies. He and Governor Bernard therefore go along with the Stamp Act. But a group of men organized to oppose it. This is what we've been waiting for. The Loyal Nine was a social club in Boston consisting of... Hmm, nine men. You got it, girl. They were in their 20s and 30s, mostly artisans and shopkeepers. This group would eventually evolve and expand later in the year to become the Sons of Liberty, which was filled with more recognizable names, including Samuel Adams, Paul Revere, John Hancock, and John Adams. So we've got this opposition in place. And remember that Hutchinson wrote in August that he feared violence about the Stamp Act? I sure do. Well, he was right. Boston became the first town in the North American colonies to rebel violently against the Stamp Act. They were done opposing taxes with words alone, like they had with the Sugar Act. Woo! I thought these people were prone to mobbing, and I was wondering when we were going to get there. (laughs) We're getting there. (laughs) We are getting there. The Loyal Nine's target was the Stamp Act collector, Andrew Oliver. Oliver and Hutchinson were brothers-in-law. Their families frequently intermarried to maintain and grow both families' political and economic stature. Why people don't like them. (laughs) Yeah, very inbred. (laughs) Oliver came from a long line of merchants who'd been in Massachusetts for nearly as long as its settlement by the Puritans in 1630. So very similar to Hutchinson. Being the Stamp Act collector of Massachusetts was a potentially lucrative position because you received a cut of the taxes you collected, which is why someone of Oliver's standing received it. The Loyal Nine don't care, though. (laughs) They not only want to embarrass Oliver, but also make it difficult and undesirable for him or anybody else to enforce the Stamp Act. Guess who's heading this Loyal Nine mob? Ebenezer McIntosh, our key player from episode one. The leader of the South End gang and military strategist. Yes, exactly. So unfortunately for Oliver, we know McIntosh takes these types of things seriously. On August 14th, a mob hung an effigy of Oliver from a massive elm tree at the edge of town. This tree was later called the Liberty Tree, and it was visible on the main road in and out of Boston on the neck. Now, an effigy is essentially a caricature of often a political figure, or sometimes it's used in funerals in a more commemorative way, but I believe they just would stuff things like straw and put clothes on it and make it appear like it was a fake Andrew Oliver and have him, you know, do a bunch of sort of crazy stuff. And then they could (laughs) ruin it and take their anger out on this uh, mini voodoo doll of sorts. And so they take this effigy and they parade through Boston. And Governor Bernard actually has this amazing quote that describes this. He said they passed by, quote, the townhouse, bringing the effigy with them. And knowing we were sitting in council chamber, they gave three huzzas by way of defiance and passed on. Yeah, you know, we love the (laughs) mention of a huzzah here. But this is just literally taunting their their political leaders. The mob then headed down to Oliver's dock and destroyed his recently built office because they heard that the stamps would be held there. I'm down with the effigy, but now we're destroying public property. And it escalates, Kristen. Oliver's house is next. The mob breaks his windows and burns his coach. Hutchinson arrived during the action and even attempted crowd control by demanding that the men disperse, which is a really brave act in defense of his family. 
No, the crowd doesn't care. They throw rocks at Hutchinson, punishing him for his boldness. And then they demand that Oliver publicly resign at the Liberty Tree. Okay, I I felt sympathy for him when we were hearing about his family, but this is where I actually start to turn on mean old Tom because this is, like you said, very brave. Turn on him in a good way. Yeah, turn on him like he's maybe not mean old Tom. (laughs) Yeah, he's brave old Tom. Yeah. I'm proud of your growth, Kristen. (laughs) Thanks. (laughs) But was it worth it for Tom? Mm. Find out what Oliver does right after this quick break. If you're like us and you love history and beer, join Yule Tavern Tours when you're in Boston. We see many of the historic sites mentioned in this podcast and we drink beer at historic taverns along the way. Whether you're native to Boston or visiting for the first time, you'll learn something new and have so much fun doing it. How do you think Oliver reacted to this violence? He resigns from his post the very next day. By resigning, Oliver reinforced violence as an acceptable way for rebels to address their grievances. Samuel Adams gloated after the destruction of Oliver's effigy, house, and stamp office. Boston, he claimed, made the Oliver riots, quote, a day which ought to be forever remembered in America. Huzzah. End quote. <laughs> but when Oliver resigned from his post in Boston, it began a number of emboldened mobs in other towns to harass and intimidate their Stamp Act collectors. Mobs terrorized authorities in Rhode Island, whose Stamp Act collector then abandoned his post. Crowds further intimidated officials in New York, Pennsylvania, Maryland, and both Carolinas. After word spread about such activity, sometimes just the threat of violence would cause Stamp Act collectors from other colonies to resign. And with Stamp Act collectors now abandoning their jobs throughout North America, other men had no desire to accept the widely available posts of Stamp Act collectors. So Parliament has passed this tax and essentially has nobody in any position to enforce it. That's right. Woo. General Thomas Gage, commander-in-chief of British military forces in North America, claimed that the, quote, populace of Boston took the lead in the riots, end quote. Gage now knows, as early as 1765, that Boston is a problem. We're foreshadowing (laughs) to to future problems (laughs) Gage is going to have. Oliver's resignation doesn't even end the violence. Twelve days after terrorizing Andrew Oliver, another mob was on the prowl. The mob went to the home of Thomas Hutchinson in the North End. Hutchinson had a large three-story brick mansion that had been built nearly a century ago and was where he had been born 54 years earlier. Fortunately, Hutchinson got word that the mob was coming and ordered his family to flee. His daughter, Sally, was justifiably afraid for her father and insisted that she would not leave the house without him. He was likely terrified that his child was minutes away from an uncontrollable mob. Mm. So out of fear for his daughter's safety, but not his own, he'd already shown that he was stubborn enough, brave enough to stare down a mob. Hutchinson fled to a neighbor's house and just in time. Ugh, the family man protecting his family. Brooke, I'm going to take a sip of Mean Old Tom and then pour out some Mean Old Tom (laughs) because I think I am officially abandoning the moniker and moving on to good old Tom's side with you. So, Well, it's a good time to flip because you're only going to grow more sympathetic to him. 
it was good that Hutchinson fled when he did because the mob spent hours destroying his home. They broke all of his windows, shattered his furniture, stole his paintings and money. They took manuscripts from his office, many of them valuable originals collected for that history of Massachusetts he was working on, mm. and flung them out into the street. As a historian, this makes me cringe. Yeah, we need those. The mob chopped down all the trees in his garden. If I was a botanist, this would probably make <laughs> me cringe. And then, not surprisingly, the mob drank all of the alcohol stored in his cellar. As a resident alcohol expert, this is what makes me cringe the most. But also, I can imagine that these spirits, wine, beer, whatever's down there, undoubtedly led to more spirited violence. It's true. If such a thing can be measured, the mob was a success. By morning, what remained was the shell of Hutchinson's house and a damaged roof. Hutchinson was stunned by how thorough the mob had been and estimated... Oh, that nearly 10,000 people came by in the passing days to gawk at what was left of his home That's and possessions. most of Boston. Most of Boston. Hutchinson said he'd been able to pick up some pieces of his clothing laying throughout town the next day, but it was mostly hopeless as the majority of his possessions were ruined, and it would have been a really embarrassing scavenger hunt. So anyway, sad. It really is. Now, Hutchinson uh, sought justice and repayment for the destruction. He reported to King George III. Wait, King? King George, he wrote to the king. He thinks the king cares. Okay. (laughs) He wrote what had been, quote, destroyed or carried away, end quote, from his house and the value of each item. He listed gilt frames, mahogany tables, china dishes, a walnut table, walnut chairs, a large looking glass, which is a mirror, and feather beds. One can imagine the awe and likely the jealous anger of the men who saw such luxury during this destruction. These were items that they could never be able to afford, and worse, a man they despised possessed them. Hutchinson estimated that all of the destroyed items totaled 2,200 pounds sterling, a considerable sum. For comparison's sake, that amount would be more than a craftsman with annual earnings of less than 60 pounds could expect to earn in his lifetime. I'm not bringing it back, but again, I can see why the people (laughs) in Boston thought of Hutchinson in a certain way. Now, Ebenezer McIntosh, episode one key player, was arrested for his alleged involvement in the Hutchinson riot. He was later released, though, after threats were made that the Customs House would be destroyed next if McIntosh remained in custody. Even if townspeople had identified other members of the mob, no man would have been brave enough to step forward and actually prosecute them, as it would have meant destruction of his property. Governor Bernard wrote to London, quote, in short... The town of Boston is in the possession of an incensed and implacable mob. I have no force to oppose them. So not only is the Stamp Act totally unenforceable, mobs are just getting away with rioting and getting what they want. That's right. The mob that destroyed Hutchinson's home, though, wasn't one sanctioned by the Loyal Nine or other rebel leaders. These men largely rioted as an outlet for their own grievances, not necessarily to protest against the Stamp Act. If you remember from episode one, we talked about more ritualized forms of mob violence, and the violence against Hutchinson's home was off the rails. (laughs) Both loyalists and rebels agreed that these types of men and riots could be dangerous. Even Samuel Adams knew that mobs couldn't act on their own or life would be unstable. You remember that he was gleeful about the mob that destroyed Oliver's home? But he called the mob that targeted Hutchinson's home, quote, truly mobbish. And the simple fact was, violence wasn't always necessary to send a message to Parliament. 
In an unprecedented act of solidarity, several colonies got together in October 1765 for the Stamp Act Congress to discuss how to deal with the Stamp Act. They decided the colonies would boycott British goods. A boycott was unusual at this time, right? I think of it as a much more modern solution or concept. You're so right. Yeah. In fact, the colonists called the boycott a, quote, non-importation agreement. It's very clunky. (laughs) They didn't even have the word boycott to use. This is really fun. That word didn't enter the English lexicon until the late 19th century when an Irish landowner with the last name Boycott. No way. Yeah, literally (laughs) Charles Boycott had people boycott him for lower rents. That's so fun. And speaking of, huzzah to Ireland and their stouts. Yeah. Mm -hmm. After weeks of violence throughout the colonies, resistance to the Stamp Act had now morphed into a nonviolent but highly effective financial punishment. This boycott was especially unnerving for British merchants who had extended credit to American merchants and were justifiably concerned that those debts wouldn't be paid back. Because British subjects in Great Britain now opposed the Stamp Act, Parliament had a harder time justifying the tax. And so, less than a year after the Stamp Act had been passed and before any revenue had been collected, Parliament repealed the tax in March 1766. That's kind of crazy. Boston, as you can imagine, was extremely when the repeal was announced. There was a party to celebrate. With booze, I hope. You know it. The Beacon Hill mansion of John Hancock was designated the party spot, and not only did he pay for over 100 gallons of wine, but he also paid for a fireworks display over Boston Common. Love it. The Liberty Tree was now decorated with festive streamers and not these vile (laughs) effigies. But despite this big celebration, the decision to repeal on Parliament's side was without equivocation a mistake. Right. I can imagine that this would set a precedent for repealing. Definitely. But Parliament, they just think they're so smart. They think they have a solution to this potential problem. It relied on a law passed earlier that century. In 1720, Parliament had passed a declaratory act for Ireland that stated that Parliament could pass laws for Ireland at any time. The people of Ireland would still be allowed to legislate themselves and have their own faiths, but the crown was their ultimate authority. When the act was passed, Ireland broke out in small rebellions, but eventually fell in line and became subject to the declaratory act. Parliament believed that this same type of law could solve their problem in North America. We might need a geography lesson. Uh, On the same day that Parliament repeals the Stamp Act, it passed the Declaratory Act, which stated that Parliament had the right to tax the colonists at any time. It claimed that Parliament had the full power and authority to make whatever laws they wanted, quote, in all cases whatsoever. But Parliament had just proven that that was not true. The Stamp Act had been passed, condemned, ignored, boycotted, and then repealed, proving to rebels that Parliament did not have authority over them in all cases. The ever-prescient Hutchinson believed that the Declaratory Act was flawed. He had rightly predicted, as you might remember, violence against the Stamp Act, and in a blunt letter to a colleague in London, Hutchinson said, quote, You have passed an act declaring us subject. A bare declaration that we are subject does not, in fact, make us so. Hutchinson explained, quote, Ireland is under your constant inspection, so every act of disobedience is known immediately, end quote. This is your geography lesson, Kristen. You're right about <laughs> go, that. Go, Tom. This would allow Britain to squash any rebellion when they're so close, but this isn't true for the colonies. It took six weeks for news to travel from Boston to London. Hutchinson said, quote, the colonies are too remote. 
end quote. So if Britain wanted colonial submission, quote, something further is therefore necessary in order to secure their obedience. A few months after asserting that the Declaratory Act was not going to work, Hutchinson wrote to London, quote, I fear the present calm after so violent a storm will be but of short continuance. Find out how right he was in our next episode. And stay tuned till the end of this episode to find out what we'll be drinking next. Eager to learn more? We are at your service. Join Yield Tavern Tours, that's old with an E, the next time you're in Boston. Our company motto is, because beer makes history even better, which obviously helped inform our podcast. The tours are a social and fun way to learn about Boston's revolutionary and drunken past, while also enjoying craft beers in historic taverns. The tours are led by historians, including me and Kristen. If you won't be in Boston anytime soon, you can read the book I wrote, Boston in the American Revolution, A Town Versus an Empire. It's available on Amazon. Next week's beer will be Jack's Abbey Lager Wine. Brooke, it's 13.5%. <laughs> I'll be sipping. We'll be sipping along as we talk about Parliament's attempt at another, another new tax in the colonies <sighs> and the increased efforts of our next key player to do something about it. This guy was a lover of nice things, including nice alcohol, and an incident with a shipload of his wine will be at the center of next episode's story. So join us next time as beer makes history.